Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Women in Confidence. My name is Vanessa and I'm the host. Before we get started and I bring in my guest, so Madison Gray, I just want to say a huge thank you for downloading this show today and listening into the show generally. It really matters to me and it means a lot to me. I know there's a whole world of podcasts out there. I know because I'm always listening to new podcasts. So I'm absolutely thrilled that I can spend time in your head for a little while and that you've chosen to listen to Women in Confidence. So this week, I want you to meet Madison Gray, who is an amazing executive coach and founder of her own business. With over 20 years of experience, she has trained and coached high-level executives, entrepreneurs, athletes and artists in a variety of organisations. And if you're interested in performing at the highest level, understanding what really drives your performance and creating an environment for success, then I highly recommend you listen through to the end and then also getting in touch with Madison afterwards. In this episode, we'll discuss the art and science of human performance and coaching, and also the motivation myth, which is just so happens to be her, the title of her co-authored book. And if you go on her website, you see this incredible testimonial from one of her clients, and it reads, Madison Gray is an amazing executive coach. I recommend hiring her. She's a great person who does great things for her clients. The programme that she tailored made for me has carried me into a new level of production and I continue to build on the lessons learned and the experiences of working with a high-end professional executive coach who cares about her client's success. So Madison, hello and welcome to Women in Confidence and thanks ever so much for joining me this morning. And it's morning here, but afternoon where you are. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. And if you just want to tell the listeners where you are, because I think I get the biggest kick out of this, but I love the fact that we can talk to each other, you know, thousands of kilometers apart. I am near Houston, Texas, uh, 70 miles northeast of Houston, Texas. Okay, so we should totally go in for this and then we'll get into your backgrounds and stuff like this. But the first question I always ask Madison is, what does having confidence mean to you? Yeah, it's a super question. Um, I think I have a two part answer. One, uh, having confidence to me means living in my clarity and living in in my values and also in my optimism. I tend to be extremely optimistic. So there's that. I think all of that is around, has to do with my level of clarity that I have around what's important to me, what I really want, what my values are, all those things. And so I can be extremely confident because I can stand in those things in almost any environment. And being an optimist, has that served you well, do you think? And and how does that show up? Yeah, so I, I think it serves me really well in almost every area of my life. But how it shows up is I just always feel like things are going to work out and things are going to be okay, even when things don't seem okay. And it's really different, as you know, from toxic positivity or positivity. I'm not always positive, and I don't believe in that. I don't believe in just think positive and those kinds of things. But I, I do have a level of optimism that I, I don't, I don't know where where it came from or how it happened. But I just always think things are going to work out, no matter what. I give people the benefit of the doubt. You know, I'm optimistic for me and for other people. It's pretty interesting. (laughs) That's lovely. That's almost like a really beautiful 
um, characteristic to have is that being optimistic for other people as well, particularly if they're not in that space, you probably give off a very positive, although that's not the right word, aura to you. You also mentioned, Madison, about values and really knowing who you are. So you're confident in those. Have you always known your values or have they taken time to mature and really come to the surface? Uh, I haven't always known what they were. They've always been there, but they were, you know, kind of covered up. So as I started on my coaching journey and got coached and started to learn what was important to me for what's really important to me versus what I thought was important to me, they started to uh, become clear. And then I was able to, uh, for lack of a better word, really insert them into my world because I'm, you know, working on my own. So I don't have competing values necessarily with an organization or a boss or those kinds of things. So to answer your question more directly, I think they've always been in there. And then the longer I do this work and the older I get, the more clear they become. Do you mind sharing what they are? I don't mind. So my biggest, my biggest value (laughs) is funny. My biggest value in, in my work is, is uh, add value everywhere. That's my guiding light, add value everywhere. Um, My second one is keep my word. I'm notorious for keeping my word. If I have not kept my word, something is wrong like send help. (laughs) Right. And, uh, but then there's that piece about, I won't get, I won't really give my word if I'm no, I can't keep it. Right. So that like kind of level of integrity that that takes and level of clarity about what's important to me. So that circles back to clarity. Right. Um, and then another value I have connected to what we just talked about in terms of optimism is I, I just believe in people and it's, it's more than a value, but it shows up like that. I just believe in people and they get it. And when I learned about this, this is interesting. When I first started to uncover this, when I was getting coaching, I was like, yeah, but everyone believes in everyone, right? And the people that I was talking with were like, no, no, people don't believe in people. And I was like, what do you mean? I, I couldn't even get it. And then I went, oh my, I had a little crisis. Like, what do you mean people don't believe in each other? And then I was like, oh, people don't believe in each other. Here, here, oh, I see the opportunity in this now. And that that's sort of like in just baked into me. So also, you know, I don't know if integrity is a value, but it's it's important to me to have high integrity and keep my word and do what I say I'm going to do and those kinds of things. Mm. So you mentioned coaching a couple of times and you've had coaching. What brought mm-hmm. you to be coached? Yeah, it's a kind of a fun story. So way back <laughs> when I was in my 20s, I was doing something that I didn't really like. I wasn't happy. I was struggling with it. And I was raised in the in the Midwest of the United States. And what we're taught in the Midwest of the United States is you can make anything work if you work hard enough at it. And that wasn't working. I was working hard and it wasn't working. So I'm out networking 
and I meet a woman and she says in her introduction, I teach women to sell and I talk to people about what to do with the rest of their life. And I thought to myself, I need both of those things. Who are you and what are you doing? Turns out what the what to do with the rest of your life was a weekend seminar where people got coached. We sat in the room all together and people got coached. Now, here's the funny thing is this is in 1997 before we have the word, before we have the profession. We didn't have any of this in 1997. So I went to this weekend seminar and when I saw what they were doing, I was like, I don't know how, when, where, but there's something here for me when I saw what they were doing with people. And that's how it, how it started. So that was the start of your becoming a coach. Yeah. So I know you, I know you've also, you know, you've got accreditations and now that's what you do. How has your coaching style evolved then over the years from that, that first seminar thinking there's definitely something in this and it really tied into your belief in people. How has Mm -hmm. your coaching style evolved? That's a really good question. So what happened next is I went into their training program. Okay. And I learned how they were doing it. And I still use a lot of those same tools today, but how it's evolved over the years is I've studied a lot of different coaching methods. I've taken a lot of classes and coaching seminars and looked at what what people are doing that's working and not working. And what's interesting about how it's evolved is I throw out a lot of things because they don't actually work. And this is really unpopular, but a lot of what people are doing and calling coaching doesn't actually work. So it's a funny thing that I've I've evolved my coaching practice based on what I see works and left everything behind, everything else behind. And um, sometimes I get some flack from that for that, but I don't care because, you know, I add value. People work with me and their lives get better. Their businesses make more money. Good stuff happens. So it's evolved by, if I'm being honest, watching closely what people are doing or not doing and seeing what actually works versus what we are told should work. So based on that then, and really evolving your practice, so you focus on what works, what doesn't work, how would you define coaching? Yeah. So here's my definition of coaching. Finding out what someone really wants and assisting them to get it. What's the most important word in the sentence though? Ooh, blinding. Yeah. Okay. What someone really wants and assisting them to get it. No, I was going to say, so you must um, come across, clients must come to you and go, Madison, I want, you know, X, Y, Z, A, B, C. And then you spend time with them and they're like, actually, I don't want any of that. That was just an external validation or that was just what has been programmed into me. And they go down a completely different route. You must see that, I imagine, quite a lot in your line of work. That is what happens because my job, first and foremost, is to help them clear this confusion up, the confusion of, what they think they want versus what they really want Um, because people make decisions conceptually and it sounds like a good idea. My, my dad was a doctor. I should be in a doctor. Um, I'm good at math and science. I should be an engineer, all these ways that people make decisions conceptually, but it's not what they really want. It's what they think they want. So people get to age 35, 38, being an engineer and they wake up to, this is not what I really want. 
So let me not make that mistake again. Let me get some clarity, right? And this, it sounds simple, but it's pretty, pretty complex because most of the time people are convinced they want that thing, but they're unfulfilled. So what happens is, is we go for something, right? And we get it. We use our, our effort and our energy and our smarts to get something that we thought we wanted. And then we get it, but we're unfulfilled. If that happens, that means it's what you thought you wanted. It was conceptual. It wasn't what you really wanted. If it was what you really wanted and you got it, you would feel fulfilled. So this happens everywhere all the time. This is why I have a job. People are making conceptual decisions from what they want for lunch all the way to what am I on this planet to do and everywhere in between. So the answer to the question is the most important word in that sentence is what they really want as opposed to what they think they want. So this is what sets me apart from a lot of coaches and is that I'm 99% sure that when someone arrives, you know, on my phone or on my zoom or in my inbox, they're confused about something. And my job is to find it. And I guess the first step is they found you, which is, yeah. which is a, a big first step is accepting that what they have is no longer fulfilling them or doesn't feel right or all those things. So actually they've taken probably the most difficult step and that's actually contacting you. But I want to talk about then they find out what they really want and it's a very different them, essentially. They have to make some changes. And that is quite complex because they've built their identity around being, let's just say the doctor, the engineer, the mum, the whatever. I mean, I don't know. I don't really know what my question is, but that's quite a traumatic with a small t process or can be. Maybe that's just my lens. I'm looking at it, but actually changing your who you are and who society has, what society has given you is is hard. I imagine. I mean, I've probably been through uh, it, but talk to me how, what your views are on that. So I think it can be hard. I think that's true, and I think I know what question you're asking. So I'll I'll just say some things if that's okay. Yeah. So when we when we go to the kind of the side of the spectrum of what am I on the planet to do? What's my core motivation? What's my brilliance, right? Because I believe everyone has their own brilliance and it's unique to you and people can't find it on their own. You have to have some help finding your brilliance. There's some reasons for that. But when we have a conversation about what's your core motivation and what's your brilliance, and that comes clear, there's some clarity about that. What tends to happen is, although it's something different than what they've been doing, almost always somewhere around 70 to 80% of past experience and knowledge and skills then apply to the new idea. So it's not like starting over. It's like, it's like, um, like tuning in your radio to the right channel. And, and then everything, almost everything you need is there, but because you have a new clarity, something new, then you can set out to do that and use all the most of the experience and knowledge that you've gained doing the other things. So it's not wasted. It's not lost. It's just a new, in a way, new application of this, some of the same things. 
you said something that was really interesting. So I wrote it down. You said about finding your brilliance and you can't do that on your own. Mm-hmm. Why do you say that? Um, because in my world, your brilliance is the thing you do that when you do it, people are amazed, but to you, it looks like nothing. So you've never given it any stock. You've never assigned any value to it. And so it's diff- and because in my world, you can't see your own, it has to get reflected back to you. So that creates a double bind. If you don't give it any stock, you don't assign any value, but people try to reflect it back to you, you don't let it in. So it creates this double bind or kind of paradoxical situation where people are trying to tell you, but you can't see it. Once we kind of lift that veil and allow people to see it and then train them, you have to really, we you have to really train people to let that in because we don't give it any value. It's so simple, easy, just comes so natural. We say things, especially women, we say things like, oh, that was nothing, right? <laughs> people are trying to tell us, man, you're brilliant at that. And we just go, oh yeah, that, that was nothing. Because it was so easy, we didn't assign a value. And do you think that's a particularly female trait? Because I'm sat here thinking of work situations I've been in. And I'm like, I will be the one who dismissed, you know, all the effort I put in. And the blokes will just be like, hey, yeah, I did. look at me. Like, I did a great job. Yeah, well done for the pat on the back. I just, I've noticed that. But do you notice that? I noticed that. I noticed that. That's a different thing. But I do know that men nor women see their own brilliance. But because of the different ways that we account for our success or our, our actions or our results, that conversation happens differently with men and women. It's a that uh, real simple psychological idea of internal locus of control versus external locus of control. I'm not a psychologist, but this is a pretty easy idea, right? So women have the opposite of men. And so men will, you know, when things go well, men will take all the credit. <laughs> and when things go doing well, an eye roll. <laughs> right. <laughs> when things go well, women will give external credit. That's a different thing. But yeah, I mean, I think in in it causes the phenomenon causes a little more issues for women, but it's not uh, based it's not based on gender at all. Mm. Well given that so again, from my belief is that the constructs of business today and leadership are still fairly male dominated and that external, you know, pat on the back or taking the credit is something that is not rewarded so much, but is seen as something beneficial to have in modern business and women don't follow that pattern. And based on your experience, so a long question, how do you think women can be successful in business and how do you coach them and guide them to be successful in what is still largely a man's world? Yeah. So two part answer. One is clarity. So most of us are running around without a a large amount of clarity. We're just not. We're confused about things and confusion. When people are confused, they underperform male, female anyone. So they're, they're, the first answer is we've got to get some clarity about what's important to you, what you're really trying to do, what you really want, those kinds of things. And then the second part of the answer is a segue into the motivation myth, right? Is we have to get better at identifying actual 
results or completed actions versus the story about results or completed actions or dismissing our results or completed actions or trying to share credit when it was us. So what, what we do is we don't really identify what we actually did. Then we add some judgment and now it looks like nothing that we're doing is working or we didn't really contribute to that in the story. I don't know if that's making sense, but that's what I think happens is all kind of balled up into the same problem, which is we don't have any, we don't have a lot of clarity. We dismiss when people try to give us credit or try to show us our brilliance. And then even when we do create something, accomplish something, or, you know, get some results, we push it off and don't really identify, Hey, I did that. Clarity. I want to talk about that because it's a word you've used a lot and it's, it seems so simple to get. And certainly through my own experience, it's taken quite a few years actually to get that clarity. And it's taken, I don't want to use hard work because I think hard work makes, will put a lot of people off actually. I think they'll be like, no, thanks. I've already got enough going on in my life. I don't need hard work to get clarity. How do you help clients to get clarity? So I use my curiosity to elicit and follow their curiosity and then, and then feed that back to them. So when I was talking about what's conceptual and what's real, right? So I use a tool, uh, the tool of curiosity. So I use mine. I don't, and the way I use mine is I don't make a, I don't make any assumptions about that. I know anything. I know nothing and I don't have to know anything. Right. And so that is a little bit different than some coaches, right? Some coaches think they have to know everything or know what someone should do. I don't, I don't know anything. My job is not to know. My job is to help you to know. And if I know, then I influence what you know. Right. So my, my, my curiosity and then elicit the client's curiosity and find out what is conceptual and what's real. So to your point, without this kind of help, it takes a long time to get clear. You can get clarity. It just takes a long time without outside help. So somebody's listening to this, uh, Madison, they've listened to the podcast and they're like, okay, I want to get some clarity. What's the one thing that they can just do at home then? You need a buddy who, who doesn't have an agenda and you have to ask them to watch to see what lights them up. So, you know, when people are talking about their kids or their vacation or their dog and the light comes on in the back of their eye, lights on, this is real. This is the distinction between what they think they want and what they really want. You know, when people are talking about getting that new job or that buying that new car and there's no lights, it's conceptual. It's not what they really want. Now you can't see your own lights because you're stuck in your own head, right? You're making decisions with your head versus your heart versus your curiosity. So the answer to the question is get a buddy who doesn't care about the answers and ask them to tell you, does it, does it light me up? Now you can't get someone who cares because they're, they can't stay curious enough to really see for sure. So this is how I'm valuable to people is I can see what lights you up and I can feed it back to you in a way that you can get it. So the analogy I like to use is it's like you're in a box, right? And you want out and the instructions are there on the outside of the box. 
Okay. And your friend comes up and reads you the instructions, but they can't read them to, to you in a way that you can actually hear and take action with the instructions. Part of that is their agenda. Part of that is their judgment. Part of that is their inability to communicate that clearly. So what I can do is I can come up to the outside of the box and read you your instructions in a way that you can hear them and you can take some action. I don't know if that's helpful. Yeah, that is. I get it. Yeah. If you have somebody who's close to you, friends, family or something, they're all, like you say, they're wrapped up in their own egos. They've got emotional attachment to you. They're probably out for their best interest, even though they don't, it doesn't come across, but that's just human beings. Yeah, I get that. So the idea being is get it, get somebody who is impartial or doesn't know anything as you were saying. And I think that's really interesting. You're saying as a coach, you don't know anything because I imagine with coaches and I've met coaches and I'm smiling um, for those who can't see this is there's that flipping big ego there. And it's like, I am a coach. I am the expert and I'm going to fix you. Whereas you take a really different approach. And I think that's very refreshing to hear. Have you had a bad experience with a coach who's perhaps been the, you know, I am the expert. Have I had a bad experience? Um, Not terrible. I've, Mm. I've, you know, had, had first sessions with a couple of coaches who didn't understand this and started telling me what I should do or what they thought I should do. Cause that's what coaches think they're being paid to do. I get it. I know people that have had terrible experiences. I personally haven't because, you know, I can tell in the first 15 minutes, if they're going to be curious, curious enough for, for me. And that's a short list, let's be honest, <laughs> but <laughs> That is part of the issue that's going on. I don't know if it's around the world or just here in America, but part of the issue is that people at this point have had bad experiences with coaches, either professional coaches or people in their organizations who want to use the word coaching, and then it goes wrong. So that's a thing for the rest of us to overcome. So tell me then, why should every woman have a coach? Well, I think it does boil down to confidence and having someone in their corner who doesn't have an agenda, who doesn't have to worry about what does this mean for me, right? So if you go and you talk to your husband, your boyfriend, your your girlfriends, your somebody closest to you, the in the back of their mind, subconsciously, whatever the issues are, the question in the back of the mind is, what does this mean for me, right? There's not enough curiosity there. There's too much familiarity. So people should have a coach, number one, for the support and the confidence, number two, for some clarity, and number three, to really be able to start to look at what did I do? What have I accomplished? Because the other thing that happens with people is we spend a lot of time paying attention to what's not working and not a lot of time paying attention to what I did that, that did work. So a really good coach can help you balance that out. Balance out, okay, that's not working, but what are the tw- what are the 25 or 30 things you did today that did work? Because we are not paying attention to those. So what eventually happens is we're only paying attention to what's not working and eventually it looks like nothing's working. And I think that's where burnout comes from. I didn't do much coaching these days, but 
um, when I do do it, I really like to do an exercise and it is so, so simple, but sometimes the simple things are the most effective. And I say to my clients, just write down a hundred things that you're really good at, like a hundred, because that's quite a lot of things. And yeah. you know, they, they quite comfortably get to probably to 50. And then I say, well, if you've run out of things, talk to people, go and go and talk to your friends, your colleagues, and then they're spilling over to like 150, 170. And I say to them, right, keep that somewhere where you can pick it up on a regular basis. And when you're having your moments of self-doubt or lack of confidence or just self-loathing, go and read this list and remind yourself you've got this huge list of things that you're really, really good at and stop programming your brain to focus on the things that you know you, you just think you're negative at or not so good at. And it, it's so simple but it takes a coach to guide somebody to do it. It's not something you naturally sit down and go, like, I'm going to write a hundred things, but I really like that. Way, it's just not the way our brain works. Our brain is not built to focus on what's working. Our brain is actually wired to keep us alive and focus on what's not working. Mm-hmm. And we have to overcome the wiring because we're not, you know, our lives are not in danger every day anymore, but we still have that wiring in there. So, yeah, I think that is a, really great exercise for people and like you said sometimes the simplest things are the best mm-hmm. so yeah it's, it's so great and then they have they have it in in their bag or in you know when they need it mm-hmm. the other just to build on that i would suggest that every day at the end of the day you sit down and take 10 minutes and and really look at what did you do that day that worked what did i actually do that worked because you know what's happening at the end of the day. You're focusing on what didn't work. So to, to counterbalance that on a, on a daily basis, start to train yourself to look at, oh, look at all these things I did that, that it worked today. Well, let's now talk of- about motivation with your book yep. the way you co-authored. Yep. Tell me about the book. How did it come about? And a bit about the content and why everybody needs to go and buy this book and read it. So the, the book is um, based on a, one of my most favorite coaching tools that I use all the time, which is which we've kind of been talking about. It's the, the tool of acknowledgement. And I'll say what that means in a minute. And I've been using this tool and teaching people this tool for years. And my um, good friend and colleague, Jonathan Mansky, came to me one day and he said, I want to write a book about acknowledgement. But if I write it, it'll just be everything you taught me. Do you want to write it with me? And I said, yes, of course, because he'd written a couple books. So he knew how to do that. I had no idea. So we uh, we sat down and we wrote the book and we wrote the book in three months. Because he's a great project manager. (laughs) So, you know, that was that was the support that I needed to write a book was someone to say, this goes here, this goes here. Hey, let's get more about this. Let's do this. So we wrote the book together. The book is, is literally only about the tool of acknowledgement and the tool of acknowledgement is maybe easier if I tell you what acknowledgement isn't. So acknowledgement isn't compliment, praise, champion, cheerleading, thanking, or any of those things. Those are things and they're important. What acknowledgement is, is stating completed actions or results with a tone of curiosity or appreciation and without judgment. And 
this is much more difficult than it sounds <laughs> because we are we are story making machines and we love our judgment. But when you talk, when you add your story and your judgment to the quote unquote feedback for people or feedback for yourself, you can't find the thing. You can't find the completed actions or results. You get stuck in the story or you get stuck in the judgment. So the, the motivation myth is, is all it's about is this problem, why it's a problem, how it shows up, and then what to do about it. That's what the book's about. So I'm just thinking of a business and, you know, businesses and people like me who work in HR, we talk about, you know, motivation quite a lot and engagement and wrap it up in all sorts of terms that, you know, make us sound really smart. And, but a lot of that is around, you know, praise and thanking people and all those things that you say perhaps are not the drivers and acknowledgement is where people maybe what we're seeking, what's actually going to drive performance. So I just want to let's unpick acknowledgement a little bit more. And how does how is that actually practically applied? How do I or the people who are listening really bring acknowledgement into their lives, but also the lives of others? Yeah. So before I answer that question, let me say a couple more things. So the myth is that these things actually contribute to people, actually motivate people. And we really think they do. We've been sold this story that the way you motivate people is you praise them or compliment them or appreciate them. And I'm not saying that that doesn't work sometimes. What I'm saying is it doesn't work most of the time, but we didn't even, we don't even notice. Okay. So let me ask you a question. If you get a compliment from someone you don't trust implicitly, does it create receptivity or resistance in you? And, and this can be true for, so let's go to praise, right? So it, if you, if someone says good job, what's the next thing that goes off in your head? What's the question in your head? Uh, ooh. Well, I'll probably question like, it's, well, I'll be questioning, is that really that important? Yeah, I don't know. My first reaction actually is to go, that was nothing, which is what you said. I would, yeah. Right. So there's resistance, right? Or confusion for what? There's, right? So, so praise often, because we're not paying attention to what actually happens with people, causes confusion or resistance for what? Or no, not really. Wasn't really that good of a job, right? Compliments often cause resistance. Appreciation is never about the person. It's always about what the giver appreciates. People are going to hate me after this conversation, Vanessa, but I'm used <laughs> to it. All So all these ways that we communicate actually have two problems. One is they're not about the receiver. They're about the giver. And two is they all contain judgment. Judgment good or judgment bad causes resistance right? If I tell you, hey, good job on that project, and you don't think you did a good job, you resist that, that judgment, you resist the good job judgment. So what happens is, is by the time people wade through the judgment, and the opinion and the resistance, they can't get to the real feedback. And sometimes it's not even there, because it's our story about what happened, not what actually happened. So here's the example. Across the country, maybe across the world every day, a conversation might go like this. Hey, Vanessa, good job on that project with 
Peterson's Corp. The client's happy, the company made money, the team looks good, and the CEO is thrilled. What part of that communication was about you, Vanessa? Not a lot. It was all about Not someone else. Not a single else. thing. My opinion was you did a good job. The team looks good. The company made money, right? So what happens eventually is people don't, or immediately, is people don't hear that that was about them. So then they start think, saying things like, and you're in HR, so you've heard this. They start saying things like, can't they see, can't people, can't they see what I do around here? Because the communication's not coming through. It's not getting through to them because it isn't about them <laughs> in honesty. But if I say to you, Vanessa, you got that project done three days early and a $10,000 under budget. You can say, I did. There's no argument. That's the acknowledgement. The rest is ancillary or, or not important to you necessarily because what did you actually do that makes me say good job, team's happy, CEO's happy, customer's happy? What did Vanessa actually do? Oh, she got that, she brought that job in three days early and $10,000 under budget. And see, they can't see you, but even though you didn't do that, you're shaking your head, yes, you're agreeing <laughs> with me. <laughs> Why didn't they teach this stuff at school? You know, it's like the, the art of communicating effectively is not taught and I say school as in you know June like really when they're young but also school being universities like the art of communicating effectively regardless of what your role is going to be in life what job you're going to is so fundamental and you've you've opened my eyes quite a lot in that just that very short you know we've been talking about acknowledgement for what seven minutes maybe you've opened my eyes and thought and I've thought I've never heard anyone really talk about that and I'm 50 nearly so like what has been going on in my life first of all you're welcome and second I think that the the serious answer to the question is that all of our systems are built on judgment all of them and so it's it's almost like it's invisible or transparent like we don't even know we're doing it and I understand that when people are using compliments, praise, champion, cheerleading, all those things, I understand they are actually trying to contribute to people. I get that part. If we really watch, if you really pay attention, they often don't. And it's, I think it's, I think this all happens because can you, can you identify a system that we live in that is not built on judgment? I, I cannot. Judgment good or judgment bad, right? So that's the answer. My answer to the question is it's just so baked in, like we don't even see it. Do you think that those things work? Yeah, I think you're right. We really, really do think those things work. And yet you've just proved that perhaps it's very it's flawed. Um, and we need to rethink as you know, humans, leaders, managers, parents, all those sorts of things about how we communicate and acknowledge yeah I want to move on to something that you've written on your website because I was um as I was doing my research I came across this statement on your website and I hope you remember it's on there but it says I'm fascinated by the gap between mediocre and masterful yeah and it really drew me in because I'm like right 
I need to understand from Madison what fascinates her and how we then, once we understand that, how can we fill that gap between mediocre and masterful? I am fascinated by it because what what is the what is the path from mediocre to masterful? You know, I use that word. You could also use high performance or mastery, but I'm I am just fascinated by it. I am fascinated by high performers who ends up being high performing, who doesn't, what's going on there. I don't know if I have all the answers. I have some ideas including much of what we've talked about, clarity, right, versus confusion, receptivity versus resistance, judgment in systems, keep people small. I know that for sure. And so, yeah, what is the journey there? It, it's fascinating to me. And like I said, I do have some ideas about it. I don't have all the answers, but, you know, I have some ideas. But mediocre is a form of judgment in many ways. It's a it's a score. It's a I don't know I don't know the word off the top of my head, but it's like my mediocre might be your brilliance. Do you know? I just it think might. it it, it yeah. could easily be. And I've been in conversations before with people, and that they'll say to me, "Oh, we just want people to be mediocre because they just do, and there's an output. We don't need everybody to be masterful and brilliant because right. the, a company can't support." you know, 100% of people being that way. And I just, I find it really fascinating. You're unraveling so many thought patterns from, from my, my sort of growing up in business. But yeah, mediocre is, is a form of judgment in my view. Yeah, sure. I wouldn't, I would definitely want to argue with that. But I think you made a more important point when you said it's individual, right? So what, and that's where the judgment goes out. It's a, it's a judgmental word, but if, if we don't judge people for where they are, maybe where I feel is mediocre is someone else's masterful. But if I judge it, if I judge them, then I'm going to think they're mediocre when they, when what they have to work with or where they're at in the process, they feel like it's masterful for, for them. So that's the part that I like about what you said is it is different for everyone. That goes along with my philosophy, right? Of meeting people where they are and then bring and then helping them get to where they want to be. It's not my spot. To, it's not my place to judge any of that. Right. If you say, I want to go to the moon and you light up, I'm going to say, well, let's figure that out. I'm not going to say, well, you can't go to the moon. You're 50 years old and they, they don't take astronauts. You know, you know what I mean? Right. Mm. Be realistic, Vanessa. Right. I'm going to say, well, let's go, let's figure that out. <laughs> if somebody says, you know, I want, I want, I, I want to, I don't know what might be mediocre in our, our minds. I want to go from zero to $40,000 a year. I don't know. I'm making stuff up. Mm. I also say, okay, great. If you're at zero, get into 40, let's go. So given that the human brain is wired to negativity or more predisposed to think of negativity we're just a creature of judgment and it's very hard not to how do we unpack uh, unpick all that so that we can see our clarity and we can then move ourselves towards mastery yeah so it's a skill confidence is a skill right Mm -hmm. optimism is a skill learning to pay attention to what you're paying attention to 
is a skill. I teach us all the time where we don't pay attention to our attention. And then our attention is on mostly what's not working. Right. And we all know that what you put your attention on grows. So eventually it looks like nothing working. So it it's definitely a skill learning how to, first of all, notice what is my attention on? What's got my attention? Is it serving me right now? And if it's not getting it on something that does serve you. So that's a skill you have to, we have to teach people that I teach the, I, I've done some mental skills coaching in women's rugby and a couple other women's sports. And this is one of the very first things we teach them. The women is what's your attention on? Because it's all, it's probably on something that isn't serving them, right? They make an error and all of a sudden this is how it goes. Oh, I dropped the ball. So in rugby, if you drop the ball, that's bad. Okay. The other team's probably going to get it. Oh, I dropped the ball. I let my team. Then the next thought is I let my team down, right? The next thought is I shouldn't be out here with these girls. And the next thought after that is I'm quitting rugby as soon as I get off this field. Now, if we don't catch that right now, our attention is on, I shouldn't be out here and I'm just, just shouldn't be here. I've let my team down. Now, if the game's still going, this is a real problem. So to teach them to notice, oh, my attention is on something that isn't work, isn't, doesn't serve me right now. What do I want it on? But that's a, a, a big skill because first of all, you have to be able to notice, oh, wait, my attention is on, on that last error I made. And we tend to do this right to your point is if, if we make a mistake, how much bandwidth do you give it? A lot. But if you do something that works, how much bandwidth do you give it? high performers step over the things that they do that work all the time. Just going to step over that and not notice it and pay 80% of my attention to what I just, that error I made last week. So I don't know if I answered your question, but these are, they're actually skills. They're mental skills that we can learn and employ to overcome some of these things. So I'm going to employ your mental skills right now and ask you a couple of quick fire questions if you don't mind so you're baking a confidence cake go with me with this one what are the three ingredients that you would put into that i i personally would put curiosity acknowledgement and optimism and my next question what's the one question you wish i'd asked you oh that's such a good question oh no you asked so many good questions (laughs) I don't know. I, I really don't. <laughs> okay. Maybe, maybe I'll think of it. Go on to the next one. <laughs> so my last question is, what's the one thing that you are working on at the moment to build confidence? That's a really interesting question. Working on at the moment to build confidence. It's funny because in true human brain form, the answer I have is what's not giving me confidence. Well, I just caught it, right? So that's the that's mm-hmm. the important part is I just was like, oh, that's what's not giving me confidence. Let me find the thing that's giving me confidence. So one, one thing I'm working on is, is I'm working on getting back to CrossFit. So I did CrossFit for years and years, and then I've been away from CrossFit for almost five years. And it does give me a lot of confidence. It does give me a lot of, yeah, for a lot. Yeah. It makes me very confident when I'm fitter and stronger and and in that community. So that's the one thing that I'm working on is overcoming some, some of the logistics that I have here to get back to CrossFit. 
All right, Madison, um, we have to wrap this up. I always never, I actually never like ending these conversations because I love them so much. And this is what lights me up. If you could, you know, if you're in a room with me talking about yeah. podcasting and this podcast, my whole world lights up around me. But yeah, sadly, I have to bring this conversation to a close. But thank you so much for being on the show. And if you can think of the one thing you wish I'd asked you, now's your time. <laughs> I cannot. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. I had a I had a blast. Hey, so that was pretty special listening to Madison and also thank you to you for listening in to the show. If you did enjoy it and you like any of my episodes, then please like, rate, review and share widely with your friends so that all other amazing women can find women in confidence. Before we wrap up, if you're thinking, I'd quite like to be on podcasts, it sounds really interesting, it could really help my business grow, I have a really strong message that I want people to hear, then reach out to my new business, which is called Boom Podcast Agency. So we're going to be a concierge service that really helps women in business, women entrepreneurs and women thought leaders to get onto some of the best podcasts in the world. So that's Boom Podcast Agency. Thanks for listening and until next time.